Lawmakers remove abortion restrictions and other social issues in a compromise defense policy bill. What does that mean for the legislation's fate? Produced by Defense News and Military Times, this is the Early Bird Brief. Each morning, we bring you the defense and national security news of the day. This NDAA is laser-focused on the threats we face. It addresses a broad range of pressing issues, from strategic competition with China and Russia to countering threats from Iran, North Korea, violent extremists, and climate change. And attacks resume in the Middle East against U.S. troops. What does it all mean for our defense and security? You'll find out. I'm your host, Simone Perez. Today is December 8th, 2023. First up, House and Senate lawmakers released the negotiated version of the 2024 National Defense Authorization Act. The NDAA, as it is commonly called, sets policies and authorizes funds for programs. Now, a note to our listeners, because in full transparency, I too was also confused how this works. So this isn't the legislation that will fund the Defense Department. This is Congress's way of saying, yes, this policy or program can happen. Congress still needs to pass what is called a defense appropriations package for the money to be officially in the hands of defense officials for the new fiscal year. The top Republican and Democrat on the Senate Armed Services Committee, Senators Jack Reed and Roger Wicker, expressed their support for the compromise legislation. I'm confident it will provide the Department of Defense and our military men and women with the resources they need to meet and overcome the national security threats we face. I hope this legislation builds on an opportunity for further uh, expansion of our defense industrial base, because so many of the things that we need to do, Mr. President, cannot be done unless we've got the resources in place to actually put Americans to work, making our country stronger. Some lawmakers, including Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene, said the compromise lacked a lot of social issues that are sticking points for conservative members. That includes ending the abortion travel policy for troops, eliminating the Pentagon's chief diversity officer position, and stopping gender-affirming care surgeries for transgender service members. Senate Democrats removed those provisions in committee work over the last week. Just wanted to give you a heads up. I'll be flat out no to this NDAA. And I think it's outrageous that this happened with our Republican-controlled Congress. Lawmakers instead advanced a 5.2% pay increase for troops, and it would be the largest pay increase for troops in 22 years. Small cuts for active duty personnel were also included for all branches of the military, except the Space Force. Defense News Capitol Hill reporter Brian Harris joined the episode to discuss some of the major parts of the legislation. So, Brian, one of the major emphases in the NDAA involved the United States' presence in the Indo-Pacific. What were some of the major initiatives in the bill dealing with that region of the world? There is quite a bit of focus on the Indo-Pacific in a few ways. Uh, A lot of that has to do with um, the AUKUS agreement with Australia and Britain, which is, of course, the submarine sharing agreement we had with them. Congress had its part to do in terms of authorizing multiple aspects of this agreement, and that's all in the NDAA, the National Defense Authorization Act, that they released late last night. So presumably by the holidays, um, Congress will have passed that. There's also a good amount of stuff about Taiwan. One thing that's particularly interesting with regards to Taiwan is it, it requires the Defense Department to set up a comprehensive training program. The Taiwanese officials have said they're sending 
up to two battalions of troops to the United States to train on uh, new weapon systems that we're selling them, as well as general military operations. There's also a provision in there that would require DOD to help Taiwan enhance its cybersecurity, uh, just to name a couple of things. And then back to AUKUS, we can talk more in depth about the specific provisions if you want, but in a nutshell, the main one would authorize the transfer of three Virginia-class submarines to Australia, which Australia will use as an interim capability while we help them develop their own nuclear submarine fleet. And the other two authorizations uh, kind of um, help lay the groundwork for that endeavor, while the fourth AUKUS authorization has to do with export control reforms that Australia and the UK have been pushing for. And I understand there was a holdup on the submarine agreement portion of the bill. What was that holdup? When the Senate passed its version of the NDAA back in July, it had two of these authorizations, one to allow the training of uh, private sector Australian personnel to use U.S. nuclear-powered submarines, and the other on the export control reform. But Senator Wicker blocked uh, to the two other key authorizations, the main one to allow the transfer of Virginia-class submarines, and another that would have that does allow the U.S. to accept a $3 billion contribution from Australia in our submarine industrial base. And Wicker's rationale for that is that the submarine industrial base is uh, very behind with current U.S. production goals for both uh, the Virginia-class submarine and Columbia-class submarine requirements for the Navy. Uh, the Navy wants two Virginia-class submarines per year, one Columbia-class uh, they are behind on that goal due to a variety of issues. Um, a large part of, part of it stems from the COVID backlog, but they're hoping to get on track with that by 2028. But in order to implement AUKUS and transfer these three Virginia-class submarines to Australia, they'll need to slightly up that capacity. And Wicker is arguing that the submarine industrial base needs more money to make this happen. He basically prompted the Biden administration to ask Congress for $3 billion extra in the submarine industrial base. And that's in this big defense spending supplemental that's mostly aid for Ukraine and Israel that Congress is debating right now and not making a whole lot of headway in passing, frankly. Uh, however, the NDAA says that the AUKUS authorization to transfer the submarines does not go in effect until a year after the NDAA becomes law. So even if this supplemental fails, a wicker is still likely to get his wish and Congress will probably appropriate in some way another $3 billion for the submarine industrial base. And that's on top of the $3 billion that Australia is providing. And while China remains the pacing threat for U.S. officials, there is still a war raging in Ukraine and the NATO alliance to think about. So senators took a proactive step in some Europe-specific policies in the bill. Could you kind of explain what those were? Well, uh, much of that debate is taking place with the Ukraine aid supplemental. I, I mean, the part of Biden's $61 billion of that is part of Biden's supplemental 
request. The NDAA does authorize a little bit of Ukraine aid, $300 billion for next year and another $300 billion in 2025 through the Ukraine Security Assistance Initiative. But that's a very small amount compared to the broader $61 billion that President Biden is asking for in the supplemental. You know, beyond Ukraine, more broadly in Europe, there's some concern that should former President Trump win the election next year, and return to the White House, he'll make good on his previous threats to withdraw from NATO. So the Senate added an amendment that's still in the final version of the NDAA that would require Senate approval for the president to withdraw from NATO. And that's kind of aimed at addressing these concerns of a potential attempt to withdraw the U.S. from NATO under uh, another Trump presidency. Thanks, Bryant. The full House and Senate are expected to vote on the measure by the end of the week. The White House has not indicated whether President Joe Biden will sign it, but most objections that administration officials noted have been removed. In other news, attacks on U.S. troops in Iraq and Syria have resumed. The Pentagon said Iranian-backed militias remain responsible. Military Times Pentagon Bureau Chief Megan Myers joins us from the Department of Defense to give us the latest on the situation. So, Megan, what updates were you given about attacks on U.S. troops in the Middle East? Any injuries sustained from the attacks and the likelihood of future ones? Yeah, so as of Thursday, December 7th, the Pentagon is saying that there have been 78 total attacks on bases in Iraq and Syria. So that represents a small uptick in the past couple of weeks. There had been a pause um, starting on about November 22nd, 23rd um, for a week. And it coincided with the humanitarian pause in um, Israel and Gaza. So the Pentagon isn't really saying, you know, we think that there was a break because, um, you know, the war took a break, but it does coincide with it. So there had been 73 attacks before, and they've slowly ticked up a little bit since then. There hasn't been one in 24 hours now, so it kind of looks like it's not the same intensity as before. You know, there were multiple attacks a day um, before that pause, but the Pentagon's, you know, not really sure whether that means that this is going to be slow forever or if it's going to tick back up. Um, But they are, they're not describing it the same way that they were in October, saying that, you know, we we think there's going to be an escalation um, and that this might get worse. So, you know, they're kind of in a wait and see and still saying if things start escalating again, we reserve the right to, to strike back when, when we feel like it, basically. Thanks, Megan. In recent weeks, U.S. Navy ships in the Middle East have shot down an array of drones believed to have been launched by Houthi rebels in Yemen. But White House National Security Spokesperson John Kirby said the U.S. isn't in an open conflict with the Iranian-backed rebel group. We are not in an armed conflict with the Houthis per se. That said... As I said at the top, we're going to do what we have to do to, to protect ourselves, our partners, and merchant shipping. And we've done it in the past. We'll do it again in the future. Also on your radar for today, First Lady Jill Biden helped launch a program to help employ military spouses and help them keep their jobs when relocations happen. The 4 Plus 1 commitment was launched at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce in Washington, D.C. It's part of the Blue Star Family's Do Your Part campaign, along with the U.S. Chamber of Commerce Foundation's Hiring Our Heroes. The change commitments include offering remote or telework flexible hours, providing paid permanent change of station leave, and increasing job portability. The effort is in partnership with the Defense Department's Military Spouse Employment Partnership. Twelve companies have already signed on, agreeing to commit to at least one of four policy changes. The goal is to have 1,000 companies signed up by the end of 2024. 
Spouse unemployment has stubbornly remained at above 20% for more than a decade. The Defense Department and the military services, as well as a number of private organizations, have worked to provide more opportunities for spouses. And now here's some other stories that we're hearing chirps about. The U.S. military announced it is grounding all of its Osprey V-22 helicopters. It comes one week after eight airmen died in a crash off the coast of Japan. A new Defense Department watchdog report warns of issues across the military healthcare system. Among the issues in the Pentagon Inspector General report are the challenges troops and their families face when trying to access care at military treatment facilities. Sweden will send more than 100 military pilots to train in Italy next year. The move marks a milestone in the two European countries' defense cooperation. And the Army-Navy game is this weekend in Boston. It's the first time in the 124-year series that America's game will be in New England. Kickoff is at 3 p.m. Eastern. Be sure to look out for our Monday episode going over the game, what it means for the military, and the nation. And on this day in history, in 1941, the United States officially entered World War II as Congress declared war against Imperial Japan. That came one day after the attack on Pearl Harbor. That's it for us this morning. To get more top stories and breaking news, go to defensenews.com ebb to subscribe to the Early Bird Brief newsletter. Please give us a like, rating, and a comment wherever you get your podcasts, and be sure to follow us on social media at defense underscore news and at military times. The Early Bird Brief is hosted and produced by me, Zabone Z. Perez. Today's episode featured stories by Brian Harris, Leo Shane III, Courtney Album, Megan Myers, and Karen Jowers. Our editor-in-chief is Mike Gruse. Have a great day.